Coming up on the Keto Camp Podcast, we welcome back Dr. Benjamin Bickman. Really part of the benefit of a long fast is that you're training the body to burn fat or helping the body remember. And that's so much of the problem, metabolically speaking, all around us. It's this metabolic inflexibility. A person is stuck in sugar burning mode. Typically, when you fast, you should shift after just a few hours of eating into fat burning mode. When you eat, you go back to sugar burning mode for most mixed macronutrient meals. Someone who's insulin resistant or type 2 diabetic, they're stuck in sugar burning. Even when they fast hours after their meal, they don't shift over to the fat burning. That is really part of the benefit of a longer fast. You're giving time for insulin to come down. You're getting back some of this metabolic flexibility. Why would you want to just undo that in seconds with just some binge? I'm a certified functional health practitioner who's on a mission to educate 1 billion people. I've been obese for most of my life. From rock bottom to the top of the mountain, I am passionate about studying ancient healing strategies like fasting and the ketogenic diet and curating this information on the Keto Camp podcast. My goal is to bring you the thought leaders in this space. My name is Ben Azadi, and I want to thank you for spending part of your day with me. Hello, Keto Camper. I'm excited to have Dr. Ben Bickman back on the Keto Camp podcast. Dr. Bickman was on episode 54, where we talked about cortisol effects on the body, exercise in the fasted state, how to reverse type 2 diabetes, the issue with the conventional treatment of type 2 diabetes and insulin resistance, and so much more. If you want to listen to that, go ahead after this one. We'll put a link for it down below. It's Keto Camp Podcast episode 54. You could also watch that video interview on the Keto Camp YouTube channel. On this episode, we take a deep dive into insulin and into his upcoming book titled Why We Get Sick, The Hidden Epidemic at the Root of Most Chronic Disease and How to Fight It. This book comes out July 21st, 2020, and you could pre-order it today. We will drop a link in the notes of this podcast for you to pre-order it. I was blessed enough to get an advanced copy of this book, and it really is such a valuable resource for all things insulin. We're gonna get into this topic and why 88% of US adults have insulin resistance. Yikes. We talk about why and how insulin has an effect on every cell and every tissue of the body. We're gonna talk about the importance of protein. We talk about insulin resistance and cancer. What is the correlation there? You will not believe his research when it comes to cancer. We're gonna talk about the difference between fasting and starvation. I asked Dr. Ben his thoughts on dry fasting. What are the best ways to break a fast? What are some signs that you might have insulin resistance? We talk about the optimal ranges to look for and test for when it comes to insulin resistance. And he has a study that he got from the University of Arizona in regards to that. So I cannot wait to bring him on. Before I do, I want to thank you so much for choosing the Keto Camp podcast out of all the podcasts out there. Our mission here at Keto Camp is to educate 
and to inspire 1 billion people on planet Earth. So thank you for pressing play today. If you're brand new to the Keto Camp podcast, please consider hitting that subscribe button. We release at least two brand new episodes every single week here on the podcast, sometimes three or four. We're committed to getting this information to you and bringing the best thought leaders in the world to you for awesome, amazing, fun conversations. If you have gotten any value from the show, please consider leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. It really makes a big difference. I love it when you take a screenshot on your phone of the Keto Camp Podcast that you're listening to, the episode, and you post it on Instagram. Shoot me a tag if you do so. My Instagram handle is at thebenazadi. We also have at Keto Camp Official and tag Dr. Bickman on there as well, at Ben Bickman PhD. We'll put links for all that down below. I encourage you to head over to a website that I have put together for you with curated products and supplements and items that live up to my high standards of health. You will find supplements for digestive enzymes. You will find healthy skincare products, household, non-toxic household cleaners, and so much more. Rest assured that any product you find on this website has been given my stamp of approval. So all of your supplements, all of your products, protein powders can be found over at ketocampsupplements.com. That's ketocamp, camp with the K, supplements, plural, .com. Search for whatever you need. You'll find it has a vast array of everything you need to crush your keto and fasting goals. Let's get into this episode with Dr. Ben Bickman. Dr. Bickman's research focuses on the disruption that causes and accompanies metabolic disorders such as obesity, type 2 diabetes, and dementia. Driven by his academic training, PhD in bioenergetics and postdoctoral fellowship with the Duke National University of Singapore in metabolic disorders, he is currently exploring the contrasting roles of insulin and ketones as key drivers of metabolic function. He frequently publishes his research in peer-reviewed journals and presents at international science meetings. Dr. Benjamin Bickman, welcome back to the Keto Camp Podcast. Uh, ben, thanks for the invitation. Uh, I'm glad to be back here again. Your episode, episode 54 in the Keto Camp Podcast, was one of my top downloaded episodes, and rightfully so. You are a brilliant <laughs> man, and if you want to go listen to that one, it's uh, on the Keto Camp Podcast, also on our YouTube channel. Ben gets into his story, Dr. Bickman gets into his story, and uh, it's a great conversation. That's episode 54. Today's interview, we're going to talk about your upcoming book, Why We Get Sick, the hidden epidemic at the root cause of most chronic disease and how to fight it. I just got through this book. I was blessed enough to get an advanced copy from you, and uh, it is the ultimate resource I've read on insulin. So congratulations, first and foremost. Yeah, uh, yeah. thank you so much. In fact, it's funny that you slightly mistake it for Gary Tobbs' Why We Get Fat. It is a little unapologetically um, derivative in the title. I have a lot of respect for Gary and him bringing to light the role of insulin in obesity. And I touch on that a little bit in the book, sort of this cyclical nature between insulin, insulin resistance, and, and fat cells or obesity. But yeah, the more I continued to study insulin resistance, which has been the focus of my career now as a scientist for about 15 years, it, it, I just became increasingly frustrated that I'm understanding this villain more and more insulin resistance, and yet it is one that so few people 
knew about or know about, and let alone know what to do about. And so in Why We Get Sick, I basically split it up into three parts, going extensively relying on the science. I think there's about 700 citations in the, in the book. But the first part is essentially defining insulin resistance, what it is and, and how we get it and why it's sort of the origins and then why it matters with regards to its role uh, in virtually every chronic disease um, that you can have any non-infectious chronic disease chances are it is either directly caused by or made worse by insulin resistance and then the last part of it is sort of the happy ending what to do about it so the first two-thirds of the book is essentially laying down the problem you know introducing the villain in this sort of horror story as i like i kind of joke but it's one with a happy ending because really you can fight insulin resistance extremely effectively and really quickly i mean i'm within days someone can go from being profoundly insulin resistant to being really pretty insulin sensitive this is a very rapidly reversed problem and thankfully so and it all depends on lifestyle well said and i love that you mentioned you present the problem the root cause problem and then you give the solutions. And the solutions, like you said, they're not crazy. They're not impossible. They are very practical. And we'll get into all that. I, I do want to talk about a stat that you shared in the book. You said a recent study showed 85% of U.S. adults may have insulin resistance. Yeah, it's like 88%. 88%? Yeah, yeah. So that was a study based at the end of last year from the uh, University of North Carolina School of Public Health. And they based that classification on... U.S. adults having at least one of the five characteristics of the metabolic syndrome, uh, expanded waist circumference, um, high blood pressure, high glucose, and then dyslipidemia with regards to high triglycerides or low HDL. So those are the five aspects of the metabolic syndrome. But this used to be called the insulin resistance syndrome because all of that constellation is built on insulin resistance. And so... Yeah, I, I think with a little bit of extrapolation, to me, the fact that 88% of adults in the U.S. fail at some of the one, at least one of those things, to me indicates that 88% of adults have some degree of insulin resistance enough to the point that it's causing one of those five disorders. And so the flip side of this is there are only 12% of us that are metabolically healthy. Now, People love to poo-poo the U.S. It is remarkable in the United States, and I say this as someone who's actually a foreigner being born and raised in Canada. The only people that really hate the U.S. are its own citizens, you know, in a, in a kind of bizarre way. And so a lot of people in the U.S. want to say, well, that's just an American problem. We're all just so fat, sick, and lazy. No, no, far from it. As I've given talks around the world on metabolic health, the most diabetic countries on the planet are actually in the Middle East. And so the problem is at least as bad there as it is here and potentially worse. And you talk about that every cell in the body, because insulin has an effect on every cell in the body, every tissue in the body. No, every cell. Yeah, every cell and cells lumped together make tissues. Yeah. And then you get into, there's a chapter dedicated all to cancer. Actually, before we get to that, what are some signs besides what you mentioned with the high blood pressure, the triglycerides, the HDL, the belly circumference, besides all that? What are some easy things to recognize on somebody that signify they have insulin resistance? 
Yeah, yeah. So you mentioning how to recognize it, the skin can be not always, but the skin can be what I like to joke a, a window into the metabolic soul. There are two pronounced skin disorders that are completely connected to insulin resistance. The first one is one that I bet your your listeners, the keto campers especially, will will recognize or at least be familiar with, and that is these little things called skin tags. And people will typically have them anywhere where there's a slight skin fold. Like if someone has a little more fat on their body and they got a skin fold on the back of their neck or around their neck, they'll have these little little bumps of skin. You can get them around the armpit, down in the groin, anywhere where there's a skin fold, you can get these little skin tags. And insulin resistance drives this. In particular, it's the elevated insulin that you see in insulin resistance, the hyperinsulinemia stimulating the overproduction of these little keratinocytes, a little part of the skin cell, one of the types of skin cells. And then a second skin disorder is one called acanthosis nigricans, but it's essentially just dark spots, dark spots. Now, someone would look at me and say, Ben, you're covered in dark spots. That's not freckles. That's not what we're talking about. These are little kind of patches on the order of centimeters that you can just see in various parts around the body. So the skin can be an indicator, but you mentioned another big one, which is high blood pressure. It is almost a certainty if someone has hypertension, they have insulin resistance. Now, there are exceptions to that, of course. You can have genuine other, like a hormone disorder that's causing it, for example, but typically it's a result of insulin resistance. And then another one is actually infertility. If a woman has polycystic ovarian syndrome, which is the most common form of infertility in women, and if a man has erectile dysfunction, which is, I think, the most common um, sexual disorder in men, then it's very likely that they also have insulin resistance, uh, especially in the woman with PCOS. What are some ways that, that somebody can test? Let's say before we get into some lab testing, let's say somebody has a keto mojo and they want to test how well they are, uh, how well their pancreas is doing at producing these beta cells and bringing blood sugar down. What are some advanced things to look at at a blood glucose machine? Yeah, yeah. So the at-home tests... One, I would say if a person can afford it and they're not expensive, buy a small little blood pressure cuff that you can just put right around your wrist. I'm such a terrible sleeper, unfortunately, just that's, I I blame it partly on parenthood, but I find that when I sleep well or not, I can immediately detect changes in my blood pressure. So that's why I carry one around. But the changes in blood pressure that someone notices if they have hypertension can be immediate. If someone has high blood pressure and they do a 24-hour fast and they see that their blood pressure comes down several points, that's indicating that their hypertension is a result of the insulin resistance. And then you mentioning an at-home ketone monitor, that can also be effective simply because Ketones represent a kind of inverse marker of insulin itself. And not to get into too much detail, because I suspect many of your listeners already know this, insulin controls fuel use. The body is a hybrid, and at any moment, it's a sugar burner, so blood glucose or blood sugar, or it's a fat burner. And it's varying levels of that. It's never one or the other completely. It's varying levels. And insulin dictates that fuel use in the body. Ketones can only be made by the body when the body is in a high state of fat burning on the order of, you know, 12 to 16 plus hours. And and that can only happen. The body can only be in elevated fat burning if insulin is low. And so if someone 
pricks their finger, measures their ketones, and it's not detectable at time point zero, whatever that is, and they fast, if they can detect ketones from around 0.3 millimolar or higher within around 16 or so hours, then they're doing all right. If it takes longer to start measuring the ketones on the ketone meter, that just indicates that insulin is higher and staying higher in that person, which is one of the fundamental aspects of insulin resistance. What if that person tests, let's say they're 16, 18 hours into a fast and they're 0.7 millimolars on their ketones? And I know that's good, but what if their glucose is 110? Yeah, so I would say in that case, it still means their insulin is low. If you are in ketosis, your insulin's coming down. And then the glucose being high, boy, that is a big question. A lot of people get confused or frustrated as they are losing weight and they see everything getting fixed, but their blood glucose levels can be a little higher. I'm not totally sure. I can only speculate why that happens in some. In some instances, it could be that they are, one, it could be they're eating too much, um, even though it might be low carb, they're in ketosis in keto, uh, on a ketogenic diet, but still eating too much. So snacking, two, snacking too yeah, often. Yep. 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 Or two, it could be that this is very rare, and I hate to almost even say this, there could be an exaggerated hormone response to the fast. So let me let me elaborate. When someone is fasting, the two main stress hormones will start to climb a little during this fast, and that is cortisol and epinephrine, the main catecholamine. So, and that's not bad. That's supposed to happen. That's one of the ways the body keeps glucose normal. That's why when we fast, our glucose doesn't plummet. Part of it is due to those two hormones. And, and glucagon, I should mention, glucagon is not at all a stress hormone. So we really have these three hormones. And what they all have in common, epinephrine, cortisol, and glucagon, is that they all stimulate glycogenolysis and gluconeogenesis. So it's telling the liver to start making new glucose. It's possible that someone's just having an exaggerated response to the fast. I would imagine if the person continues to, the, to do the fast and the body begins to adapt to that state a little better, those would come down and the glucose would too. But again, a lot of speculation here. Yeah, what I've seen, Ben, is those who have a lot of mental stress also have those higher fasted glucose. Or if they had a poor night of sleep, yep. they'll have higher yep, cortisol. Yep. So that's right. No, no question. Even even one bad night of sleep can adversely affect glucose tolerance and insulin insulin sensitivity. That's very well established. What about testing postprandial? An hour to two hours after eating a meal, looking at your glucose, and then two to three hours after. What are some numbers to look for there? Yeah, yeah. So that's a good question. I should I should have reviewed that. Typically, I think after a few hours of a, a meal that has carbohydrates in it, you want to be back to around mid hundreds. Uh, mid to low hundreds after a few hours of that, but I'd want I'd need to look that up to confirm. I can't exactly remember it. Yeah, what I've what I've looked at is yeah, it's similar to what you just shared from my research. It's uh, about an hour to two hours after eating a meal, blood glucose one twenty or lower is is optimal from what I've looked up, and then two to three hours after around a hundred or less is is optimal. Let's since we're still on the topic of fasting, let's stay here and then we'll go back to the insulin. What are your thoughts on the best way to break a fast versus the worst way to break a fast? Yeah, yeah. So what a great question. And the reason I, I like the question is because as I have seen people around me from time to time just sort of shrug their shoulders and say, I'm going to do a seven-day fast, which let's call it what it is. And that that is 
a little extreme. Now, I'm not saying you can't do it. I'm not saying that at all. If a person is overweight, they can do it. Um, they just need to be smart about it. They got enough energy to get through that. But I guess let me elaborate there because this sounds like I'm going off on a tangent, but I'm really not. The longer a person is in a fast, the lower the insulin is getting, and that's a good thing. Part of the consequence of this is that on the surface of every cell, there is something called a potassium sodium pump, and this starts to slow down. And so this changes the body's and the live, uh, the, sorry, the kidneys handling of potassium. And so the, the kidneys start to dump a little more potassium during this phase because it's not moving it into the cells as rapidly as it was before. So just to keep the blood potassium levels in their normal range, and it is a very narrow range, the kidneys start to dump a little more than normal. Now, unfortunately, if someone ends a longer fast, and I'm saying seven days, but it could, it could be shorter, with just binge of junk food, insulin spiking junk, then you accelerate that small little potassium sodium pump and you accelerate the rate at which the potassium's coming into the cell and the kidneys are still dumping a little faster than normal. They haven't gotten the message yet to stop. And so the person can run the risk of getting this acute hypokalemia. That is lethal and it could kill you. Changing potassium levels in the blood is a mechanism of lethal injection to kill someone. Now, I'm not saying the person's going to die, but you're messing around with some pretty strong things when you start pushing or, or depressing the blood potassium levels too much. And again, there's a very narrow range there. So ending a fast on an insulin spiking, starchy, sugary binge is the worst thing to do. And not only due to the insulin effect and the changes in electrolytes in the blood. But I would say also just because you're starting to offset a lot of the benefit, really part of the benefit of a long fast is that you're training the body to burn fat or helping the body remember. And that's so much of the problem, metabolically speaking, all around us. It's this metabolic inflexibility. A person is stuck in sugar burning mode. Typically, when you fast, you should shift after just a few hours of eating into fat-burning mode. When you eat, you go back to sugar-burning mode for most mixed macronutrient meals. Someone who's insulin-resistant or type 2 diabetic, they're stuck in sugar-burning. Even when they fast hours after their meal, they don't shift over to the fat-burning. That is really part of the benefit of a longer fast. You're giving time for insulin to come down. You're getting back some of this metabolic flexibility. Why would you want to just undo that in seconds with just some binge? I mean, it, it's, it's unfortunate, and it really defeats much of the metabolic benefit and I would say much of the discipline that a person is developing during a fast, that, that sort of self-denial and, and helping the body remember that I am more than just this fleshy passion, you know, this desire of my body just to have whatever it wants. No, there's a part of us, our mind, our spirit, whatever you want to call it, that is seeking to be in charge. And I really do believe a fast at the risk of sounding too churchy, spiritual, and I don't mean to. I do think much of the benefit of a fast is, of course, metabolic, but it is this sort of clarity and discipline that comes from kind of subduing these natural urges like eating all the time. Anyway, that what that was a tangent. Uh, so don't end a meal on an insulin spiking starchy sugary snack. You want to focus on what is actually essential, which is fats and proteins. And it just also happens to be that they have the smallest effect on insulin. I love it. I always say how you break the fast is just as important as the fast itself. Yeah. 
Yeah, I agree. Well said. So what, what are your thoughts on dry fasting? Yeah, yeah. I think that it can be used very effectively. It does stimulate, uh, I believe it stimulates autophagy faster than, than a so-called wet fast. So there is just that physical benefit. I, full disclosure, um, in my faith, we do a full dry fast once a month, 24 hours, as just sort of part of this process of kind of subduing the flesh, if you will. So yeah, I think it can be used very effectively. Of course, it always will have a much shorter time span than a, a fast that allows you to be drinking and consuming electrolytes. Do you do a hard dry fast or a soft dry fast? Yeah, I don't know what you mean. So a, a hard dry fast means you don't even wash your hands during the 24 hours. You don't get any water touching your skin. <laughs> oh, no, no, that's not. No, it's just what you consume. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, a, so, I've a never soft heard dry that. fast. Yeah, yeah there's yeah, two sure. types. Yeah. Yeah, it'll just be that you're not we're not drinking or eating. And I have read the same thing that hypothetically you could get almost three times the autophagy. So hypothetically, he's saying that one 24-hour dry fast can be equivalent to a three-day water fast in terms of the autophagy that you're getting. Yeah, but if you can ever find data on that, I gotta see it. I've heard people say that, and I certainly feel a lot different. I mean, the difference is just stark dry fast versus uh, you know water or wet fast but i'd love to see data on this so i i don't want to be propagating a myth if someone hears this and knows it's bs i want to know so if you hear something ben to confirm or, or refute it please pass it on yeah me too so I'm, I'm saying that based off of the group that i work with they've tested versus a, a, a wet fast versus a dry fast and they've seen that clinically with their themselves the doctors i work with and their patients but i haven't seen a study on it so i'm just it's just hypothetically i'm thinking yep. about yep. that well but anecdotal right currently. anecdotal yep. yes exactly that's the word i was looking for so staying on the topic of fasting here's a common thing that the non-fasters say and you're going to appreciate this because they say that you're going to wreck your metabolism. First of all, that word, what does that even mean? <laughs> so, so what are your thoughts on, on that when you hear somebody say you're going to crush and wreck your metabolism during a, during a fast? Yeah. I, I, first of all, I feel the same way you do, which is I immediately want to shout in their faces, BS. What does that even mean? I mean, as, as a scientist, with my PhD being in bioenergetics, which is the study of energy in an organism, that is metabolism at its purest sense. And so when people use the word metabolism in, in pop culture, I'm always a little wary of it and always wonder to myself, what do you really mean by that? And, and there's a lot more we could get into with regards to people saying, well, this helps your metabolism be more efficient. And you could make the case, you actually want it to be less efficient so that it's wasting energy to help you lose weight or maintain a lower body weight. But nevertheless, wreck your metabolism, that's nonsense. I think one of the best, clearest, simplest definitions of metabolic health is the one I mentioned earlier, metabolic flexibility. Can you shift between these two states? Are you a true hybrid engine burning fat um, when you start to fast a few hours after a meal or burning blood glucose immediately following a mixed macronutrient meal? That's healthy. And if that's the definition, if we could come to an agreement, if that were the consensus definition, then, then to say that fasting is going to wreck that is, is demonstrably, absolutely, unequivocally wrong. Amen. What's the difference between fasting and starvation? Yeah, great question. Uh, so uh, fasting, I define them as, have you started cutting muscle? So in the process of a fast, there's this very immediate adaptation 
within the first few hours of, of a little bit of nitrogen loss within like the first 12 hours or so, hinting that there was this moment of a little bit of muscle um, loss, but, but it's suggesting that, but then it stops. And so the muscle is absolutely defended, but the great defender of muscle during a fast is actually ketones. So the reason the body has this brief period of potentially using some protein for gluconeogenesis to make glucose is that it needs to continue to feed the brain, which isn't an energy hog. It, it does have a very high metabolic rate, but mind you, actually nothing compared to the kidneys. As we've been measuring metabolic rate in my lab, the kidneys are like 10 times higher than the next. Then it's like uh, brain and then muscle and then really? fat tissue. But nevertheless, yeah, the kidneys are working like, I mean, they got full RPMs every moment of the day. It's shocking, honest to goodness, as an aside, just to give people an insight into science. The very first time we started measuring metabolic rate in kidney tissue, we had no idea what to do. We had to keep loading more oxygen into these little chambers where we're measuring metabolic rate because it would chew through the oxygen in like minutes. And you put in a brain, anyway, this huge, huge rate of burning through the oxygen, which is kind of the purest definition of metabolic rate or the purest way of measuring metabolic rate. Fascinating. Um, but yeah, it's fascinating. But to bring it back to adaptations to fasting, fasting versus starvation, and, and how ketones are the great defender of muscle, for the first period of a fast, you aren't quite in enough ketosis. You're not deep enough into ketosis for the ketones to be feeding the brain. And so the brain is still relying mostly on glucose that starts to come in the first phase from a little bit of muscle. Then the moment the ketones come online, immediately the catabolism in the muscle stops. So people will say, I'm sure all your listeners have heard, ketones are muscle sparing. And that is absolutely true. During a fast or during a low carb diet, if ketones are high, then it allows the muscle to keep all those amino acids as muscle protein because the ketones are feeding the brain. As you guys know, up to 75% of all the brain's energy during a fast starts coming from ketones. So the brain's dependence on glucose just plummets and this spares the muscle. So as long as someone can be making ketones, they're in a fasted state. And of course, ketones come from fat. And if you're fasting, then the ketones are coming from you burning your own fat. So as long as I have fat to burn, I'm fasting. And the moment I've run out of fat and now I start burning muscle, now I'm starving. That's the key to me. That is the simplest, clearest definition. When you run out of fat, you're no longer fasting. You are now starving. Now, of course, most people aren't going to get to that point very quickly. And I would never recommend that they try. That's messing with some pretty powerful metabolic um, machinery if you get to the point of starvation. So you know, no one try to do that. But that to me is the point the, the point of distinguishing between the two. Do you have muscle to burn? Uh, sorry, fat. Do you have fat to burn to make ketones, to spare the muscle? Yes, then you're fasting. You've run out of fat. Now you're burning muscle because you don't have any more substrate, no more fat to make ketones. Now you're starving. And, you know, according to Dr. Jason Fung, who wrote the foreword to your book, in his book, The Complete Guide to Fasting, he said you don't reach that point until about 5% body fat or less. Yep. Yep. So, yep. In fact, I think it's appropriate for you to invoke Jason, one of just the leading voices when it comes to everything fasting and just an all-around really good guy. I agree. I agree. He's an amazing resource, amazing human being. I want to take a quick break here to share with you about the dangers of taking fish oil. I know, shocking. I was somebody who took fish oil every single day for years. 
And then I came across a ton of research showing the dangers of consuming fish oil. I immediately found an amazing product called Pureform. Pureform is a plant-based omega. And the cool thing about Pureform is that it is uniquely processed with nitrogen to preserve it and make sure it does not oxidize. These essential fatty acids are cold pressed and you get the proper balance of omega-6 and omega-3 to feed your cells what it desires. We know that life begins and ends at the cell membrane. And when you have the proper fats, the building blocks for those cell membranes, all of a sudden your fat burning hormones can do its job. So you lose weight. All of a sudden your cells produce energy. So you feel good. So we know that cellular health is key for performance and longevity. So I've been taking Pureform every single day. My dog takes it every single day. So does my girlfriend and my mom. This is how much I love the product. If you want to get your bottle delivered to your door, head over to purelifescience.com. Check them out. Order a bottle or two and you'll be amazed by how you feel after taking this just after a few days. That is purelifescience.com. Use the coupon code BEN4 to apply a $4 off coupon. That is BEN, B-E-N, and the number four. International shipping is available. Okay, let's go back into this episode of the Keto Camp Podcast. What about growth hormone in that role of preserving muscle during a fast? Yeah, so growth hormone is muscle um, sparing in the not not in the same sense the ketones are, but it protects the muscle, it defends it, because growth hormone will inhibit the cat those catabolic processes. So growth hormone is kind of a magic hormone. It's catabolic where you want it to be catabolic, like breaking down fat, stimulating lipolysis, and then it's anabolic where you want to be building things up or at least defending them, which is muscle. Now you're not going to be building muscle during a fast, but growth hormone is helping you spare it. But let me be clear. If it's a short-term fast and you are actively getting the muscles to failure during an exercise bout, you certainly could be anabolic at your muscle. But if you're getting longer-term fasts, then building muscle isn't really going to be your outcome. That's not what you're going for. And also your explanation of that short-term period of time where your body is transitioning from burning sugar to burning fat and then during a fast if you you went into that fast already in ketosis then there wouldn't be that short-term time frame oh no that's you're right so that's where getting keto adapted maybe beforehand yep you'd skip right over that so you don't have to worry about that yeah in fact um some of the more deliberate cautious people who do these longer term fasts they actually kind of preload so to speak um their metabolic processes by in a few days or week before a multi-day fast, they will be very strict ketogenic. That's exactly the way I teach it in my academy. Smart. Also, you get to autophagy much faster going into it with depleted glycogen stores as opposed to having your oh, yeah. sugar reserves filled. Yeah, that's right. And that's whenever I've mentioned the insulin to glucagon ratio, so, so the insulin to glucagon ratio being, I believe, an overall indicator of where you are with regards to autophagy and just the benefits of fasting that low insulin to glucagon ratio where insulin's low and glucagon's higher is really reflective of a fasted state. A high insulin to glucagon ratio, high insulin, low glucagon is reflective of a fed state. And so if you can be in a low insulin to glucagon ratio, even when you're not fasting, like you're eating, 
well, then why not do it? You know, if, if, if why not just sort of live there all the time where you're constantly turning the body um, cells over and activating autophagy? And without a doubt, a low carbohydrate does that. In fact, there's, I mean, that's absolutely um, confirmed. What are the issues with having chronically low levels of insulin? None. Um, I don't know. Uh, none that I'm aware of. So people like to say, well, if you have chronically low insulin, then you are depriving the muscle of a primary anabolic signal and you just can't build muscle. Now, there are not a lot of studies on this. In fact, none. Uh, I'm only aware of one study that looks at muscle performance. And that was, I think, a study with Dom D'Agostino in Florida as a co-author. They looked at gymnasts, collegiate gymnasts, and found that there was no compromised muscle um, mass or muscle strength with the adaptation to a ketogenic diet. So I'm speculating, but I know even anecdotally for myself, I've been generally a pretty strict ketogenic diet for about eight years. And I've personally in my 40s put on, well, now in my 40s, I've, I'm 15 pounds thicker than I was um, before it. So even as for me as a now a middle-aged guy, I'm being in ketosis almost all the time. It has not blocked me. And I'm not a big man. Anyone can see this. I'm, I'm certainly on the petite side, as my sisters like to joke with me about. What, what, is it, what do you mean by um, most of the time you're in ketosis? Could you give me like an idea of how many times you get out? Well, yeah, yeah. So because I have, a f I think I, I blame it on my family, Ben. I blame <laughs> it on my family. So there are moments when it is difficult to just stay in ketosis. And by that, I, I mean, um, so we have a chore chart in the home. And so three days a week, it is one of the kids of my three children, one of them has to prepare a meal with mom. And we get we give them a lot of flexibility on what they do for the meal. So my little boy, it's his day today to make dinner with mom. It'll be, I'm positive he's making spaghetti and meatballs. That's an easy meal for me to keep low carb. I actually just end up eating the meatballs and no one even notices. We're sitting down, we're eating as a family. It doesn't disrupt the family dynamic at all. No one even cares or notices that I'm not eating the, the noodles. Um, although we, there is a brand of noodles, I don't know the type, but it's a higher protein noodle brand. We typically get that one. But nevertheless, one of my daughters the other day or last week wanted to make grilled cheese sandwiches. You know, Ben, as much as I'm committed to low carb, I'm far more committed to my family. And so me opening up the grilled cheese sandwich and picking the cheese off, you know, and daddy's, you know, that's bizarre. And so I ate a grilled cheese sandwich that my daughter made for me and I loved every bite. And so without a doubt, I was out of ketosis for a time and then back into it. So that's what I mean. So I guess I'm, I'm pretty practical where my, I balance my dietary interests and, and priorities even I, I put that in its right place with regards to my whole life priorities, which is family and faith, number one, and then it's, you know, and anything else below it. So sometimes family needs will kick me out of ketosis and I'm okay with that. I love that share. Like, and, and, and for example, like if I'm on a little date with my, one of my daughters or my son and they want to go get ice cream, I'm going to get ice cream. You know, if that's what they say they want, then I'm going to do it. How sweet does that ice cream taste when you have it? <laughs> oh, it's amazing. I love ice cream. I love it. Uh, so what about this? Because I'm curious about this. What about the role insulin plays with the liver and the kidneys and the thyroid, T4, to make that conversion to T3? 
wouldn't you think if you had if you years in ketosis that conversion could be compromised? Uh, I don't know. Um, that's that's a great question, and I wish I had more kind of thyroid knowledge in my pocket to be able to pull it out. I'm not sure. I don't know how insulin affects that conversion. My speculation would be, hopefully, an objective speculation is that if we are adapted to to fasting, we are able to burn our own fat and to burn fat well. And that really is the defining state of a ketogenic diet or a ketosis or fasting, uh, whatever way we're getting into ketosis. I just can't believe that that would have a negative effect. And, but also, I don't know anyone who is, I mean, at least the people I know, I guess, maybe I'm just reflecting too much of myself on others, but people are getting bumped out from time to time. Maybe not as often as I am um, with like once a, once a day with dinner, but that's not every day. But anyway, I, I'd like to think that the body is adapted well enough to this, but also I've never seen, I mean, to defend it a little more objectively, I think if there were um, such catastrophic results, and, and let me be clear, if you start messing with thyroid, that is catastrophic. The brain in particular, its function will plummet if, if thyroid isn't adequate. And so one of the most stark examples of this is a congenital defect named cretinism or a congenital hypothyroidism. The consequences on this little fetus, this little baby are disastrous and lifelong if mom and baby aren't making enough thyroid. And I know women who are in ketosis their whole pregnancy and are perfectly healthy and the baby is perfectly healthy. If there really were such a substantial effect on thyroid, I think you'd see it. And, and even when you look in the newborn, as you know, a newborn baby can bottle fed or breastfed, and the baby will get back into ketosis within about an hour or two. So, I mean, really strong, high ketosis. I'm talking like one millimolar. A baby can get there in one hour. You know, it would take an adult a full 24 hours to get to. A baby gets into it immediately. If ketones were that antagonistic or being in ketosis and low insulin was that antagonistic to thyroid function, I think the species wouldn't have survived because that brain could not develop. And in contrast, the ketones and being in a state of ketosis is creating a very optimal environment for the brain to thrive and brain development. Yeah, I agree with all that, Dr. Bickman. The only thing that I'm questioning here is the women who were in ketosis throughout their pregnancy, were there periods of time where they actually got bumped out? Did they have a meal? So that's where it's hard to find out, you know? It I, is. There's also something else that I've read, and I got to get the research on this so you can look at it. There's another form of insulin resistance that occurs when you're in ketosis long-term for some people. I, I can't remember the exact things that happened, but what I've read was that the, the cells can actually insert water to slow down fat burning and blunt the receptor sites to insulin when it's only been using fat as its only fuel source for a long period of time. I've never heard that before. So if, if there is a scientific study on that, I'd be really curious to see it. What I will say is that I think it is not accurate to say that being in ketosis or on a, adhering to a ketogenic diet causes insulin resistance. And I say that because I don't think it's accurate because insulin is low and that immediately tosses out the definition of insulin resistance. You cannot be resistant to this um, hormone if it's low. 
it only happens in elevated states of elevated or hyperinsulinemia, high insulin. And so there is such a thing as physiological insulin resistance when the body is insulin resistant on purpose and it's for a purpose. So physiological insulin resistance is pregnancy and puberty. Those are two states where insulin is high and the body is a little more insulin resistant and it's supposed to be and it's supporting growth. It's helping the teenager get have this explosive growth. And in, in mom, it's helping the development of multiple tissues, but also helping mom just get fatter because she's going to go through this kind of energetic marathon when she has her baby and then starts lactating um, to feed the baby. She's literally moving her own fat into her milk for a baby. That is physiological insulin resistance. The typical insulin resistance in a clinical perspective, or those the, the one that most people should be worried about is a pathological insulin resistance. Now, in every one of these, it's high insulin. On a ketogenic diet, a person is becoming glucose intolerant. And that is not the same as insulin resistant. So if we took someone who was on a ketogenic diet and infused a bolus of insulin, they would respond to that insulin very, very strongly. It still works very, very well. That is not insulin resistant. If, however, we gave them a bolus of glucose, it will take longer to clear that glucose. And that is simply a result of this inverse, this reciprocal burning. The body can't be burning high levels of both fuels. It's burning one or the other, and it's supposed it's built that way. If you've had the body in such a state of fat burning for so long that you immediately challenge it with a load, pushing it to burn the other one, it just to me, it makes sense. The body says, oh, okay, wait, we're back to burning that one. All right, well, I'm going to get through it this time. And mind you, Ben, if they follow it up another day later, the body will respond to it almost perfectly, if not absolutely perfectly. It just needed shocking the system metabolically is, I think, what you're seeing in that instance. And again, that is more accurately termed uh, glucose intolerance, which is not the same as insulin resistance. Although, Clinically speaking, those two typically go together. In the case of a ketogenic diet, we've kind of teased them apart. They're no longer going together. Fantastic. I, I love this type of discussion. It's so interesting to me. And um, I'm going to get those studies. I'm going to send it to you, and I'll do a follow-up solo episode on what your thoughts were on that. Mm-hmm. Last thing here on this subject, because I, I love ketosis, obviously. Keto Camp's my company. I'm all for it. But there's just these questions that roll in my head, and I just want to get the answers to them. That's why I'm just asking these questions. Oh, no, I love it, Ben. I love it. In fact, let me say, just to be really open here, I don't think either of us, neither you nor I, are saying, look, ketogenic diet all the time is the only way to do it. No, no. There's a lot of nuance here. And there are people that I think can thrive on a high-carbohydrate, low-fat diet and be perfectly healthy. But if we take someone who's insulin-resistant – and I strongly believe the data suggests that most people are insulin resistant. They benefit more from a low-carb diet. There's a fascinating study that split people up into those two groups. Are you insulin sensitive or are you insulin resistant? The insulin sensitive people responded well to both diets, low-carb or low-fat. And, and, and good for them, those lucky SOBs, don't be smug about it. You know, Good for you. The fact is most people are insulin resistant. The insulin resistant group did not respond as well to the low fat diet. And so thank heavens, more and more people are cognizant of the fact that there's an option. There's an alternative to the dogmatic decades long advice to go on a low fat diet. Well, they can just flip the macros and go low carb. And if they're insulin resistant, they're going to have a better response. 
Yeah, and, and that study you shared earlier, 88% of people are in America insulin resistant. Yeah. Last thing here on this subject before we go back to uh, insulin in your book is when we study ancient culture, we know that just about every single culture, they were in ketosis because of their environment. They didn't have food readily available. But also, isn't it true that they got out of ketosis from time to time when they did find food, especially foods that were not just protein and fat? Yeah, oh yeah, undoubtedly. Now, I'm not an anthropologist, so I would want everyone to know that. Me too. I'm not nearly as informed about this as I am about nutrient biochemistry. But yeah, I think it is, it, it doesn't take too much knowledge on this to confidently speculate that, yeah, the normal, our ancestral state would have been probably states of prolonged ketosis broken up whenever it could be broken up by consuming whatever the starchy, fruity substance, uh, you know, or, or starchy, like honey, fruits fruit, or, yeah. or honey. Yep. Yep. But that wouldn't have happened very often. And, and so I'm reading a fascinating book. I don't have it here. It's on my nightstand at home. But he, he's looking at human evolution and, and is touching on the metabolic changes here. And it's fascinating where he's mentioning that the agricultural revolution, where we left hunter-gatherer states, which is what we're talking about now, which would have been lots of ketosis broken up whenever it could have been by whatever little berries or honey they could find, that was the natural state before. That's our ancestral state. And then the agricultural revolution allowed this explosive growth in, in humanity, just the population. But it could have also been the beginning of this decline where the best anthropological evidence suggests that we are several inches shorter now than we were as hunter-gatherers. So our agricultural versions of ourselves, what we've evolved into, is weaker um, than it was as hunter-gatherers. But we live longer. Of course, that has nothing to do with the agricultural revolution. It's just science and medicine. But it's fascinating because he says the agricultural revolution was a boon for humanity, but a curse for the human. So human health has suffered as our diet has become progressively monotonous. You know, it's just a few things that we only eat all the time. There's almost no variation in our diets. It's these few grains and these few sources of fats and, and like nothing else. Well, in meats, you know, but it's, so it's very homogenous now and not nearly as nutritious, whereas our ancestral diet was very varied and far more nutritious, but not scalable to the point that we have it here. So the agricultural revolution was a boon for humanity, but a curse for the individual human's health. Interesting. Is it the book called Sapiens? Is that what you're reading? No, no. What is it called? It, it has the... I, I can't Send it remember. to me when, when, when the conversation is yeah. over and uh, I'll put it in the notes. I want to check it out yep. as well. Okay, awesome. Let's get back to your book. You mentioned about how to test. Like, what is what is the optimal range for um, insulin? And you mentioned a study from University of Arizona. Can you talk about that? Yep, yep. So, uh, if someone is able to convince their practitioner to measure their insulin, that right there is a hurdle, because even many in the medical community just they'll say, "Well, we already measured your glucose, and your glucose was normal. So, why do we need to measure your insulin?" And that's unfortunate because, of course, insulin can be high. The person can be fighting this war with insulin, becoming more and more insulin resistant, but there's enough insulin to keep the glucose normal. So just because glucose is normal does not mean that the insulin is. So if someone can get insulin measured, they want to be under six. And if someone's doing a multi-day fast, it's not uncommon that it actually drops below detection. That does not mean it's not there. It just means the clinical assessment isn't capable of going that low. That's not a bad thing in a person who knows they're not a type 1 diabetic. 
because again, it's not that it's gone. It's just gone really low. So below six is good. And then typically I say based on a little bit of evidence. So there's speculation here that then the next kind of range. So if you're six or below, you're great. Green light, you're doing great. Um, if it's up to around 15, 16, 17, so, you know, seven to sort of 16, 17, be a little careful. You know, you're not too far. You can make some quick changes and get right back. And if it's higher than that, it's time to take things seriously. Um, now, the problem, though, is that insulin, there is no consensus number on it. And so even the numbers that I'm coming up with are based on what I believe is the best evidence. But I wish there were more. I, I really do. So that's my kind of informed speculation when it comes to numbers. And some of those ranges, some labs go up to 30 and 40. Oh, and- yeah. That, that's part of the problem. You'll have someone get a blood pe- test back and they'll say, hey, my insulin's 25, but here it says it's in the normal range because up to 30 is normal. Oh, my goodness. That's not that's not normal. Maybe if you just ate 10 Snickers <laughs> bars, that's normal. So like, what you're saying is it's, it's, it's important to get things like your A1C done, but that's not giving you the full picture. That's just looking at your three-month average of your blood sugars when you could still be insulin resistant and have a, a somewhat good-looking A1C. Yeah, in fact, A1C, not to beat that too much, but A1C, you could argue, is just as much an indicator of the state of your red blood cells as it is your your glucose levels. Because if someone has a disorder where they're destroying their red blood cells faster, like a, a type of hemolytic problem, a hemolytic anemia, even if it doesn't go to the point of anemia, if you're destroying your red blood cells more quickly and they have a higher turnover, you're going to have an artificially low H, uh, hemoglobin A1C just because... HbA1c is when glucose is bound to a hemoglobin in a red blood cell. Now you're measuring it. Well, if you're destroying your red blood cells fast and making new ones all the time, well, then it never has time to get glycosylated. And so you're going to have this kind of false positive or false negative where you think, I'm good, my HbA1c is low. Well, it's not. Your glucose is high, actually, just you're killing your red blood cells too quickly. In contrast, if someone for some reason has very long-lived erythrocytes, red blood cells, Well, then it's naturally just going to have more time for a glucose to bind. Even if their glucose is quite low, just the fact that your red blood cells have a lifespan of, say, 150 days rather than 120, it just makes it far more likely that it's just going to get, you're going to have a glucose come and get stuck. And so it's going to be artificially high, even though it's not really a problem. Great explanation right there. You have a chapter in your book dedicated to cancer, cancer and insulin, the correlation there. Some of the stats that I've read outside of your book was that one out of three women get diagnosed with cancer in their lifetime, one out of two get diagnosed with cancer. And you have a lot of stats like that in there. We know cancer is so rampant and it's devastating. Chances are somebody listening or watching right now knows somebody who had it or does have it. So what is the link between insulin resistance and cancer. Yeah. yeah. In fact, Ben, this is the topic very dear to my heart. My mom died of breast cancer when I was just a boy. So it's something I'm very sensitive to. And it also means that I have a very healthy respect for the disease. And namely that it is a vicious, brutal beast that is so poorly understood. We know so little about this problem. And that's because the very nature of the disease is change. It's just, it, it is a disease of mutation. And if you think you've solved it, well, you haven't. You solved it in that one single person. But more and more, some of the neatest evidence from Thomas Seafried's lab in Boston is hinting, again, more and more, that a lot of the origins of cancer, but again, there's so many different types, really, could stem from 
energy problems, namely problems in the mitochondria, that there's a mitochondrial deficit or disorder, and that's carrying over to this shift where the, the cancer, the, the cells forget how to have normal metabolism and then shift into this kind of more fermented kind of bacteria. They end up acting like bacteria or what's called the Warburg effect. Anyway, his research really is, is lending credence to this idea from like 70 years ago from, from Warburg or, or more at this point. And nevertheless, uh, the two cancers that are the most connected to insulin resistance happen to be the two most common, breast and prostate, so the most common in, in women and men. And just to really help, the pe- help people understand the connection here, if you take a healthy woman and take a biopsy of her breast and take a woman with breast cancer and, and, and take a biopsy of that tumor, um, all cells have insulin receptors. We, you mentioned that at the very beginning. Every cell in the body, yes, even cancer cells, have insulin receptors. So a place for insulin to come and tell the cell to do something. It basically is a door for insulin to come and knock on. And the more of those doors um, available for insulin to come knock on, well, then the more responsive the cell is going to be to insulin. The breast tumor has seven times more insulin receptors than the normal than the normal breast tissue. So in breast cancers, part of the mutation is that it's becoming progressively more responsive to insulin. And that is sort of doubly problematic. On one hand, not only is it getting that anabolic response where insulin's telling the cell to grow, 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 and continue to proliferate and multiply. So it's one of the effects of insulin, but it's also feeding it and helping it use the glucose better. And so it's stimulating the growth and fueling the growth. And now when we, because it's telling it to use the glucose, but when we combine that with a hyperglycemic environment as well, and most people are, then now you're providing it with all the fuel that it needs. So it's this perfect storm of telling the cancer cell to grow and giving it all the fuel it needs to, to support that growth. So I, I was uh, watching Dr. Erin Keneally, who's a medical doctor. She's an oncologist from uh, California. She was speaking at a conference, and she had shared something similar. She shared it with her research. Certain cancer cells had 64 of these receptor sites versus one or two in a healthy cell. And I was just blown away by it. I had no idea. And then she was sharing, and I know that you uh, share about this as well, that when they do a, a PET scan, right, they have, is it an injection they do, or they, do they drink it? Yeah, yeah, they, they inject a radio-labeled glucose. So they infuse this, like, hot glucose that can be shown on, on a scan. And if they have uh, cancer, they, it lights up like a Christmas tree. Yeah, because it pulls in, like, 200 times more glucose than a normal cell. So all that glucose will just come rushing into those cancer cells. So cancer and sugar have a mutual relationship. They, they thrive off of each other is what we're saying here. Oh, yeah. Yep, cancer depends on glucose. Now, people will say, well, there's also some ketone-using cancers. I've never seen evidence of that in humans. The only time you can see evidence of a cancer cell using ketones, to my knowledge, is an in vitro model. So you take cancer cells and grow them in a dish, and then you can find some cancer cells that use ketones in this artificial environment. To my knowledge, there's not a single line of evidence suggesting that there's ever been a human cancer found that thrives on ketones. So I don't believe that's physiologically relevant. Let's talk about, since we talked about the problems, we talked about some of the physiology going on with insulin resistance and cancer. Let's talk about some solutions. Let's talk about, let's give some people hope here, What you do in your book, by the way. Well, first of all, before we get into that, 
I want to encourage all of the keto campers who are watching right now, who are listening right now, to go to Amazon or go to the link that I'm going to put in the notes of this podcast and pre-order Dr. Bickman's book, Why We Get Sick. It's going to be released July 21st, 2020, and you could pre-order it right now. It is such a valuable resource. And if you know somebody who is type 2 diabetic, buy this book for them. You could change their life. So I encourage you all to go pre-order it today. And if you're listening to this after July 21st, 2020, go order it today. It's a phenomenal book. It's such a great resource because he talks about the things we're talking about here, but we're not even scratching the surface on how deep you go into this. So let's transition into some of the solutions, Ben, in your book. Yeah, yeah. So thank you for that, by the way. Um, It was a fun book to write, uh, and I'm I'm really just glad it's out there. Uh, So with regards to solutions, I kind of frame the solutions in a sense, at least in my mind, what are the main causes of insulin resistance? And as debated as this has become, it's unfortunate because the evidence is clear. One of the main causes for insulin resistance is high insulin. Um, Now, there could be more. There is more biochemically to that. It's not just high insulin, bam, you're insulin resistant. But if insulin itself is a driver of insulin resistance and the evidence suggests it is, then one simple question is, well, then how can I best control insulin? And that right there was the beginning of my journey, acknowledging the benefits of a low-carb diet. So I was just as much opposed to a low-carb or, heaven forbid, ketogenic diet as as the average individual. I would always say to, to clients when I was a personal trainer years ago when I was a master's student just trying to make ends meet, They'd say, hey, what do you think about the Atkins diet? It's a ketogenic diet. I'd say, oh, sure, you're going to lose weight, but you're going to die from heart attack. Oh, man, it was just such an easy line. It's such, an, it's such low-hanging fruit to just pick off without having any actual knowledge on the topic. But that's a bit of an aside. If you ask, what's the best way to lower my insulin? There's no question. Fasting or a low-carb diet is the best way. And thank heavens, when it comes to a low-carb diet, There's nothing essential about carbohydrates in the diet. There can be good things about them. Fiber, yep, fiber can absolutely be good. There can be other um, polyphenols and other molecules that can have some benefits in humans. And I'm not saying that that can't happen. Absolutely, there can be some benefits, but it is not essential. Maybe it's essential in our processed food environment. I'll say that to be diplomatic. And where people where people get mistaken there, Ben, I'd love for you to clarify it, is they say, well, glucose is essential in the body. So what's the difference between that and actually carbohydrates with, from eating? That's right. Yep, yep. Based on the best evidence, we can conclude glucose is necessary for human survival. Thank heavens we make all we need. There you go. <laughs> yeah, so... Focus on the things we need in the diet, which is protein and fat. And again, thank heavens they have the least effect on insulin. In the case of of fat, normal levels, like something below 500 calories of fat, it won't have any insulin effect. So shift the diet to that. Now, however, to be fair, you could go on a truly kind of plant-based vegan diet and also get a lot of benefit with insulin sensitivity. No question, you would become more insulin sensitive. If you're leaving a conventional standard American diet behind and adopting a plant-based vegetarian or even further vegan diet, your insulin sensitivity is going to get better. You just better hope. The the further you go from, from animal foods, the more educated you need to be to know what you're going to be deficient in because you will be deficient. And then second, you have to be lucky enough to be able to afford the supplements to make up for it. And that right there is absolute proof positive 
we are not meant to be vegan as a species because if you adhere strictly to a vegan diet, you will die. We know that. So I have to, I have to, I feel compelled to say that. But but if someone wanted to eschew animal products for whatever reasons they had, and I can respect them as long as you don't try to invoke science, if they're just moral or ethical, religious, whatever it may be, okay, it can work. You just be smart about what animal products you are getting. If you can get some eggs, then you're really doing great because I consider an egg one of the most nutritious foods. But even still. You can do it across the spectrum. What they have in common, a plant-based vegan or a more a purely carnivore person, is that they are avoiding processed foods. And that, to me, is really the foundation of an optimal diet to improve insulin sensitivity. You're cutting out those processed starches and sugars and then those artificial fats. So on that point of processed foods, we know that it's so nutritionally deficient that when you eat these foods, whether it's vegan or not, you're going to be hungry all the time because your body's starving. So why is it important to get in quality protein on a ketogenic lifestyle? Yeah, yeah. So I, I think it's great that you mentioned that. I use the term misnutrition because, and I think it's accurate to just clarify it or distinguish it from malnutrition, although you could say it's a type of that. Malnutrition, I think it's appropriate to think of someone who's just starving, like truly starving. Misnutrition is this environment, this hypercaloric yet nutritionally empty environment we find ourselves in where mentioning protein is relevant because there's something called, and in humans, the evidence is not completely there to say this, but in other animals, it is more clear. So we'll just, I'll mention it with that caveat. Um, the protein leverage hypothesis suggests and there's evidence to support it, that a human is going to be compelled to eat until they get to a certain protein threshold. And of course, processed foods, the one thing it's going to be deficient in is going to be protein. They'll have fats in there, they'll have starches in there, but it's not going to have protein. And so the person's going to be compelled to eat until they get to a protein threshold. And importantly, animal-based proteins are substantially better more bioavailable, a higher um, net effect in the body than any plant protein. So if it's eggs and whey are the absolute best, beef, um, any animal protein will beat every single plant protein. So the person would have to eat a lot more plant protein to try to get to a comparable amount of actually usable protein that you could get from just a modest amount of protein from an animal source. And even then, you're not going to get the optimal mix of amino acids. Even if you're getting enough amino acids, you're not going to get the what I consider a much more beneficial mix from the animal-based protein. Well said. Yeah, a couple of years ago, maybe a year and a half ago, I made some videos saying, you know, be careful with protein on keto. You don't want to get this gluconeogenesis. And then I realized that I was actually wrong with that assumption. And your work credited to that. So now, actually, in my academy, I have a 28-day keto jumpstart where I take somebody who's a sugar burner, get them into ketosis safely. And uh, I actually recommend going higher in protein during those first 28 days to help you with feeling full and satiate you so you don't have to snack in between yeah. your meals. Good for uh, you. And and I know that you formulated a new product. Uh, tell us more about it. Is it behind you right there? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So there's a little <laughs> product placement. So yeah, so one of the problems, at the risk of seeming too much like a salesman here, and I don't, I don't want to, um, so anyone listening, please give me the benefit of the doubt. As I kind of mentioned with regards to the book, 
when you see a problem so glaringly obvious in front of you, you can't help but want to try to make a solution accessible. So one of the problems with adopting, maybe the only problem with adopting a low-carb diet is that it's not convenient because convenient foods are typically going to be ones that are misnutritious. So the wrong kinds of fats, starchy, rich, rich in starches and not enough protein. So with Health Code, that's the name of the company and Complete Meal is the name of the shake. The website is Get Health and that's HLTH.com. With Complete Meal, it's built on this foundation of what I, I sort of jokingly refer to as a divine ratio of a one-to-one protein to fat. And I say that because earlier I just mentioned how I consider eggs to be among the most nutritious foods on the planet. Eggs are one-to-one mass protein to fat. And you look across some of the best um, studies that looked at ketogenic diets, like from Volick and Finney, these, these legends in the realm of ketogenic diets, they would put the macros that they had their patient, these subjects, study subjects on, typically were a roughly one-to-one, where it was about 65-ish percent from protein, and then about 30% from fat. Sorry, other way around. About 65% of calories from fat, about 30% of calories from protein. And this ends up being um, a one-to-one mix by mass because fat just has a higher caloric density than protein does. So that's the foundation of the product. And then, then it's all these little extras like apple cider vinegar and some MCT to cover the spectrum of fats. So it's short-chain, medium-chain, and long-chain fats. And then even a little bit of flaxseed just because the main oil, the fat in flaxseed, but it's milled, it's not a processed um, fat flaxseed. The main fat from flaxseed is alpha-linolenic acid, and that is the most ketogenic of all the amino, of all the fats. It, it, it is burned faster than any fat in the body, and it also spares the other omega-3s, EPA and DHA, to be used for EPA and DHA, for the brain structure or any other, other nerves that have that demand. So, that's the complete meal in a nutshell. So uh, again, the impetus was simply to make this easy, that if someone were wanting to adopt a low carb diet and, and it, it is easy two scoops into a shaker bottle and you're good to go. Um, and, and you know, there's nothing artificial, even, even the sweeteners, monk fruit and stevia, um, nothing artificial in this. It's completely natural. And, and it's something I'm really, I'm proud of. I can see that. And I know your research is of the highest integrity, so you can trust Dr. Ben Bickman's research. We'll put a link for that in the notes if you want to check it out. I love that you mentioned, you said ALA. Is that what you said is in there? Yeah. I I love that you mentioned that because so many times people say, oh, all omega-6s are bad. Stay away from it. But it's it's not true. It's the adulterate you want to stay away from. But the omega-6, the cell membrane, 25 to 33% of the cell membrane is made up of omega-6. So when you give it these right building blocks like the ALA, then like you said, it could use utilize the omega-3 and do their job. So I love that that's in there. Yeah. So Ben, to be clear, ALA is an omega-3 and then LA, linoleic acid is omega-6. So, but you're right. As much as omega-6, among the informed, people point a finger at omega-6 as a culprit. And to the degrees that we eat it, it absolutely is but it is essential. Omega-6s and omega-3s are absolutely essential in the human diet. And even our ancestral hunter-gatherer diet had more omega-6 than omega-3 on the order of around 3 to 1. The problem is in our modern diet, it's about 20 to 1 ratio of omega-6 to omega-3. And that's because the single most consumed fat in our diet is soybean oil. 
So if you look across all fats, people want to say, oh, red meat is fatty and it's killing you. No, we don't eat any more red meat now than we did 100 years ago. What we do eat a lot more of, we eat the same amount. But you look at the trends over the last century, soybean oil goes from nothing to being the com most commonly consumed fat in our diet. I mean, it is number one, and that's bonkers. Number two is margarine. Is number two. So these two fake fats are the two most commonly consumed fats in our diet. That's a problem. Now, that's not to say omega-6s are the devil. We need them. They are essential. And in, even in normal amounts, we get it, it, it is typically a little more omega-6 and omega-3. Um, we focused on ALA as an omega-3 just to help balance that ratio. Because knowing most people are going to get a lot of omega-6s, we want to try to bring that ratio higher insofar as omega-3s can start to compete with omega-6s for those metabolic pathways to be converted into other molecules. But also, it, it is just very readily burned and very ketogenic. So it, it made some sense to put ALA in there. And that's just to sort of help balance that omega-6 to omega-3 ratio. Yeah, thank you for your, that clarification. And, and by the way, we went in a little bit deeper on vegetable oils and the dangers of it, like soybean, canola, on episode 54. If you want to go listen to that interview with Ben Bigman, we did it on that episode. So this has been an amazing conversation, as I knew it would be. Any final words on this message that we're delivering today? Yeah, well, I appreciate you giving me the time. I have a drum that I beat, and that, that is insulin resistance. It really is my professional focus how can I make as many people as possible, as informed as possible with regards to insulin resistance? Because I believe it is a common thread across many chronic diseases. And that is liberating for multiple reasons. One is that if you can recognize insulin resistance across the multiple disorders, then you're not trying to treat each individual disorder. You're not giving the person a medication for their diabetes and a medication for their blood pressure and a medication for their infertility. You would take a step back and you'd say, wait, every one of those things is a branch off of this common trunk of insulin resistance. Well, let's just chop down the tree. Let's go right to the insulin resistance. So my hope is that people can recognize it in their disorders and identify it as such, you know, getting a, an actual definition or a clinical diagnosis if they can get their insulin measured. But then acknowledge that that changes the way we treat these disorders. We're not taking three distinct drugs. We just say there is not a single drug on the planet that can improve insulin resistance as much as lifestyle changes, and that is quantified. We know that. So then just change your lifestyle. Diet is both a culprit or the cure. It is causing the disorder or it is curing the disorder. So change your lifestyle, and I know that is hard. And Ben, you are on the front lines and being a resource to that. And I'm not, I'm not where the rubber meets the road. That is you. I just, I'm hoping that I'm providing people with a little more fuel to put in the engine as you're kind of helping them get down the road. Beautifully said. And you are doing a fantastic job at that. Your work has been profound in, in my work and a lot of your fingerprints are all over the things I teach. So I want to thank you for that. I, I appreciate you coming back for round two. I can't wait to do round three and round four and just continue studying all the research you're putting out there. I encourage all keto campers to go check out the links for Dr. Bickman. Any, anywhere else you want to send them? Any other resources you want to send them? Yeah, so please, um, more and more, the gethealth.com is going to be uh, a resource where I'm going to start putting up blog, blog posts. But for now, um, please connect with me on social media. It really is just a vehicle for me to share the latest science and just thoughts on human metabolism. And, and I can be found at Ben Bickman, PhD, 
um, and on both Instagram and um, and I think it's Dr. Bickman on Facebook. And, and Twitter is Ben Bickman PhD as well. We'll put all those links down below. We have Rachel, our professional notes extraordinaire to do it all for you. To thank do it you, all Rachel. For us. Yeah, thank you, Rachel. Um, give a quick shout out real quick to Amanda. She's in, she's in the UK. She's in my Keto Camp Academy uh, membership and she loves your work. So give her a quick shout out. Uh, well, Amanda, thank you. If you're a fan of mine, that means you have, you're a boring person. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. It means you're easily entertained. Uh, and you love science, uh, I hope. I hope that's why you're a fan. And I sure appreciate it. It's That really is my, my involvement on social media was simply a way to take science and make it accessible beyond a scientific manuscript, which let's admit it is not accessible. <laughs> well, I thank you so much for your work. And I really had a great conversation. I had a great time with the conversation today. Thanks, Ben. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with the brilliant Dr. Bickman. I totally geeked out with him. Hey, if you want to watch the video version of this interview with Dr. Bickman, we posted that on our YouTube channel. We have some timestamps on there. It's a pretty neat edit that we did for you. Head over to the Keto Camp YouTube channel. That is youtube.com slash keto camp, camp with a K. If you know somebody who is type 2 diabetic, who is overweight, who has high blood pressure, who is insulin resistant, any of the above, Send them this episode with Dr. Bickman. You could change their life for the better. You can just simply copy and paste this into a text message for them right now, and you never know what difference you can make in their life. If you got any value from this episode, I encourage you to leave it at rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Apple iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you're listening from. It really helps the show grow. It helps this message get into more hands, and it helps us make a difference in this world. All of the links and the resources and the timestamps and everything we talked about on this episode can be found in the notes of this podcast, so be sure to check that out. A reminder, for approved supplements that live up to our standards here at KetoCamp, head over to ketocampsupplements.com. If you'd like a free guide to teach you how to master keto and fasting, I do have a free 12-page ebook called The Keto Kickstart Guide. Head over to ketokickstartguide.com to claim that for free today. Take a screenshot of this episode if you haven't done so already. Post it on your Instagram profile. Tag myself at TheBenazadi. Tag KetoCamp at KetoCampOfficial. And tag Dr. Bickman at BenBickmanPhD. Can't wait to see that. I'll share it on my story. We'll get some other Keto Campers following you back. Thank you so much for listening to this entire episode of the Keto Camp Podcast. You'll hear me on the next one. This podcast is for information purposes only. Statements and views expressed on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Benazadi, disclaim responsibility from any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own. And this podcast does not accept responsibility of statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or non-direct interest in products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.